God damn it. You know, I try to be all serious and poised and then the record goes on. You think this is how I want to introduce our podcast? (laughs) What conditions are stipulations? Magic tricks (laughs) or manipulations interjecting I know. God damn it. And it was for um, such a sobering reason. And here we I are. Know. Back on Exceedingly Persuasive. Mm. Regardless of what has brought you grief this year plus, um, sometimes you just got to grin and bear it and lean into it because life sucks, What else man. are you going to do? So anyways, yeah, this is Exceedingly Persuasive. I'm Mackenzie Brennan. I am Brooke Rogers. Thank you for joining us. We missed you. Yeah, thank you guys so much for your patience. Um, for those of you who are not on Instagram, because Brooke was helping me out with keeping everybody updated and just like staying in touch with my very sporadic communications. So um, in February, one of my best friends, Lindsay Schofield Kramer, um, lost her husband, Bobby Kramer, who was also a good friend, uh, when he was killed by a drunk driver going the wrong way in Arizona. So, and they also have a two-year-old, his name is Arthur and he's wonderful, Um, but this was very much not their plan. Mm. Um, And they were a great young family, Lindsay and Arthur still are, um, just really sweet, wonderful people. And their world was just shattered by somebody who apparently during a pandemic uh, on a Tuesday night decided I'm gonna get drunk enough to drive the wrong way and kill someone on the highway. Um, So I was out there just spending some time with the family and helping, I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> helping uh, them just deal with the aftermath. figure out whatever the hell you can figure out in a time like that um and even just simple things like childcare, which actually parlays into our episode topic but thank you guys so much for your patience i know it was kind of unpredictable and i didn't have a great plan of what was going on either but um if you do want to donate because obviously Lindsay and arthur were not prepared for this at all. Um, Bobby was doing really well in his career. He was a mixologist and a restaurant part owner. Um, and now he's out of the picture. So and he was um, the primary breadwinner for the family. He was, yeah. And he, he was also a Navy veteran. He was a Navy medic um, and just like a really warm, positive person. He was her high school sweetheart too. So just like the uprooting of this bullshit act, like I, whatever. Um, in any event, if you want to donate, it would be really, really appreciated. You can Venmo me with the subject Bobby and my Venmo is at MKZ Brennan. Um, and I'll send you a little screenshot as a receipt and a promise that it made its way, but we all really appreciate it. And thank you. Our, yeah. Our, <laughs> no, it's, I mean, it's a, it's not something that anyone sees coming and it's, um, to have it happen to someone who was um, a husband and a father of, you know, a toddler oh, was heartbreaking and a friend and, um, you know, just very, very loved by so many people. Um, 
it's something like that is just it completely changes the course of your life. So our thoughts are with Bobby's loved ones and uh, we appreciate those of you who have yeah, sent your you. kind thoughts already. Um, really, really and- appreciate it. And Lindsay does too. Um, she's obviously so scattered, but she's gone through and like liked a lot of the Venmo transactions. So um, it really, it makes a huge difference, especially in early days when after every death, there's just, it sucks so much that there's this business of death that comes after mm-hmm. that life doesn't stop when your world stops. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just a lot to reconcile, but especially when it's something this abrupt and tragic, like Bobby was 31, Lindsay's 29, Arthur is two, obviously, um, mm-hmm. that just to ease, especially this early burden is really important. So I appreciate so, so much um, what you guys have given and said so far. And Brooke, thank you for facilitating a lot of that. Oh, of um, course, yeah. Um, and yes. yeah, so that's that's all I will say about that. But yeah, but no, yeah, we, we're just really thankful for everyone's patience and yeah. um, just just the love and kindness that was sent toward yeah. Bobby and his family. Love um, your people and also please use a ride service. If you cannot afford one, you can't afford to drink. Like that, simple as that. Just yeah, I mean- user ride service, um, designate somebody as mm-hmm. a sober driver, um, get a ride home from mm-hmm. the bar in any, any way you can. Um, but just, yeah, don't get behind the wheel of a car if you're not sober. It's so dangerous. So many lives end this way. Um, it's just, crazy that you still put your, this happens. Yeah. I mean, you put yourself in danger, you put other people in danger, uh, and it's just, it's just not worth taking someone else's life or your your own there's always there's always another option besides getting behind the wheel of a car drunk um if you're it's uber lyft or whatever it is uh just honestly uh, yeah yeah, cab just asking uh having a friend come pick you up anything anything is better than driving drunk so Mm -hmm. um, that is true so uh speaking of the i don't know unintended costs and difficulties of unplanned family consequences maybe okay, that, here, yeah you know, this, honestly this is a, not a clean transition um but uh the other day i was <laughs> that's it's story time with brooke rogers and as, Pope, as one does <laughs> well actually i was um i was taking my birth control pill as i do ah, every yes. day and a girl i was looking at my little pack of pills and I am um I take all my active pills back to back so there's a mm-hmm. for those of you who don't know there's four lines of pills in a generally four lines of pills in a birth control pack and three of them are one color and then there's um there's a, a fourth line which represents a week that's a it's different like 28 color. days so you got right essentially a four week dosage yeah right it's, it's supposed to it's supposed to match up with like yeah. your your cycle mm-hmm. and um i was a thanking the gods of modernity once again that Modern i uh, don't have to have a period because i can take these pills back to back because my periods were awful when i did have them and i don't want to do it anymore yeah and the fact that i can opt out of that is amazing um mm-hmm. And then I asked myself, why does anyone take these these uh, placebo pill- pills at the end of the month and have their period if it's, you know, 
if it's if there's an option not to now there are reasons why you would want to there's and I like will qualify this that um a lot of the placebo pills um it varies the number of days so i was on a pill for a while that only had a four-day placebo course um because mm. essentially it you just want to alert your body to slough off the lining of the uterus which even with birth control will fluff itself up a little bit um just because it does get that fluffed. regardless get fluffed um get so it has to like slough off frilled. all the all the puffy like one of those beta fish yeah like frills up at the end of the month <laughs> um so it basically is just signaling with a, a different dosage of hormones that it's time to uh get rid of all that and start again which like you're saying it's not really necessary to fluff and unfluff and refluff in that strict sense if you're not planning for a baby and your body isn't producing or releasing eggs at that point so um this baby factory is closed for business yeah the baby factory is is sleeping right now um for an industry moved in and the factory shut down oh boy oh boy amazon <laughs> set up shop and now all the local egg businesses are doa um they had to but, pack up their tiny suitcases and move out that was but, like, oh, i was but, like so the pills the placebo pills actually do have iron supplements in them too which uh are useful because sometimes the body will bleed because it thinks it's supposed to. And so that happens and you want to re-up your iron supplies. I get very anemic. Um, and when you're losing blood, obviously you're losing iron. So sometimes the placebos do that. There is some thought about uh, like, are your hormonal side effects worse the more months that you don't allow for that gap in hormone dosage? Mm -hmm. So there are some things that are unresearched or unverified, but the bottom line is that, yeah, you don't need to be fluffing up your uterus and shedding the lining if you're not making babies. So you don't really need that gap. I was, yeah, I was like staring at these placebo pills, which speaking of which, um, I, I'm very anemic as well, by the way. Um, All hot girls just, are anemic. Yeah. I, I, I am both irony poisoned and iron deficient. Um, yeah, we bruise like bananas in this house. Yeah, I, I have like, I have bruises all over my legs 100% yeah. of the time. And I never know where they came from. And I know that's like a basically a meme by now. Everyone's like, oh, women, they're always bruising their legs and, Sorry. you know, wanting to vote. Bitches, <laughs> <laughs> women be bruising. But honestly, all like periods and hormones are a huge part of that uh, because you do tend to retain iron and, and keep it less with our yeah, women, women are all anemic because women are all, you know, they're all we bleeding for a week out of the month. lose a huge volume of blood every I, month, yeah. Sorry. I don't take my placebo pills because I can't afford to lose any more blood. I already look like a newly fresh English corpse. Please. I don't need you look like Prince Philip as he was released, <laughs> thriving and dead from the hospital this week. But yeah, so why why have a period? So I, that's my question. I had remembered this thing in the back of my mind where I read somewhere that it um, was the Pope's fault somehow. And generally when people Usually. tell me it's the Pope's fault, I say, of course it is. I know it is. Not even like this Pope, Pope Francis. It's not even, it's, it's just the Pope, the, the not even the, the man, office. but the position. The office yeah. of the Pope has done so much. We don't even talk about the one that was a Nazi. Girl- it's like pick your poison and then you get back to the crusades and we're just like uh, uh, what degree of ill are you looking for this week so yeah so i remember in the back of my head that the pope was responsible for there being placebo pills thing. 
in birth control packs. And I was like, why do I think that? And, you know, again, my bias in general is just to blame it on the Pope. Probably, so I was like, maybe yeah. is, this, is this something that I made up? But no, when they were creating birth control pill packs, uh, they decided to put the placebo in so that women would keep having periods because they thought it would placate the Catholic church into allowing Catholic women to take contraception. Um, it just begs so many questions. It's like, because on the one hand, I'm like, why did they think that the bleeding was important? But then the next thought is like, yeah, you know what? They probably do. There's probably some weird old man church obsession with the bleeding part. Because usually they make up some roundabout nonsense way where it's like, in this line of the Bible, it talks about the rain that comes every month. So that means that God wants you to bleed and and suffer to bear children. Like, I don't know. I, yeah, I'm not, I don't know the exact argument made on it behalf didn't work. of that. They're, apparently their line was so much conception prevented so many homicides. That was like the line that they would use when talking about any kind of birth control, including The condoms. wording of that makes no sense because it's like, prevented is not akin to actively taking right so like does life begin at conception or does life begin as a sperm for that yeah this is like the 1950s that's not that long ago the 60s to now honestly like what do you think they say now because uh what we're talking about today is oh boy um primarily birth control and abortion and women's health policy in Venezuela under Nicolas Maduro and how both the U.S.'s domestic and international policy has affected that and what countries should do in an international community when a very socially regressive and very needy country needs aid but is making very bad domestic policy decisions and also i think in a broader more like abstract sense Mm -hmm. looking at venezuela as um a sort of test case not to dehumanize it but a test case in what happens when women are deprived of reproductive choice and we talk all the time about you know, theoretically about what would happen in the United States if um, uh, abortion were made illegal um, in in every state. In so many states, it already effectively functionally is because women have to drive to other states to to access health care or, um, you know, they, they can't because they can't take a day off their jobs. They don't, they can't pay for it. Like there are a lot of places where practically it is impossible to access reproductive care, but, um, you know, what would it look like if not only um, abortion were made illegal in all 50 states, but also what happens when women have zero control over their own reproductive lives um, because they don't have access to birth control or contraception of any kind. And it's Which apparently this... now we only realize things when they come to their absolute worst. I mean, you look at the COVID crisis and people can yell and scream about policy and say like, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. Please don't let this happen. And there's something about uh, the way that our national attitudes and understanding of civics has gotten yeah. that we, and maybe it's a little bit that we're desensitized by now too, because a lot of things are 
I mean, you and I have joked about how everything under the last administration was unprecedented. And it's like, yeah, but it kind of was um, that we kind of, you almost have to get numb to people saying this is a really bad thing until or unless it gets really, really bad. And it gets to that point where people are dying in an immediate sense. So mm. <laughs> um, again, like you said, not to dehumanize or or distance the reality of the situation in Venezuela, but here we have um, a very close to home in a human sense example of what we've been saying will happen and does happen when these resources don't exist. Right. Um, but because other structures are also aren't in place to uh, help out children that are born, um, women who are taken out of the workforce and don't have health care. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of side effects of the immediate problem too. Right, because there, when women don't have any control over, when women don't have any control over family planning or um, when they have children at all, um, because they don't have access to, and say, even say that you're, you don't believe in, uh, in, in choice. Say you say you're pro-life, but, um, you know, maybe you're also like hesitant about birth control. If you're, if you're religious and you don't like the idea of contraception or whatever, it's like, this is what happens when women don't have any control over, um, when they have children or how many children they have, the results on their, daily life can be devastating. The economic impact of that on yourself, on the children that you do have, on your family, on your community is something that I don't think we really think about. And the um, government at large. I mean, there's the community in a local sense. And then there's the fact that we're talking about a country that um, in a way that's related and in a way that will get a lot worse is already struggling a lot economically. And the solution is let's add, a, Maduro apparently told every woman to have six children on top of this. So it's like, we're, we have a strapped financial system, insufficient aid structures, um, let alone things like education and healthcare to prevent negative impact. But we're gonna take money out of the system further by distributing it over exponentially more people. Um, and then, I mean, honestly, to bring it down to a much more individual level, and I don't know, I feel so pessimistic about people understanding the humanity argument in the way that I'd like them to about women picking their careers and, and being mm -hmm. humans in the same way that um, some men, men are allowed to think be. of themselves. Yeah. But, you know, in the article that Brooke sent me in the New York Times about this problem, uh, a woman was talking about how she wanted to be a chemist. And now that was on hold. So simple things like simple, uh, huge existential things for the individual, but individual level things like I want to be educated. I want a job, which ultimately pays the country back. And mm -hmm. then as somebody who just stayed with a two-year-old, um, waking up at 4.30 in the morning, um, we get him to nap when he needs to nap. Um, you have to watch him 24-7. It's a, it's a multi-person job for one child mm -hmm. to have the right resources. Um, and then you think of the generation of people that you're creating who don't have any of that, plus don't have healthcare, plus don't have mm -hmm. money for education. Um, it, it's a huge slippery slope. No, absolutely. The, I mean, the way that this, the way that 
not being able to control um, when or if you have children affects um, the the each individual woman on a class level and and increases mm-hmm. poverty for women who are already struggling is not something I think that we often consider. And um, especially in places where people are already uh, struggling. So in Venezuela right now, um, the the what drew my attention to this issue and the main source that um, uh, we built off of here is an article called Venezuelan Women Lose Access to Contraception and Control of Their Lives in the New York Times. It's by Julie Turkwitz and Asain Herrera. The country, Venezuela itself has been in an economic crisis for some time um, and it's been worsened uh, in recent years, in the last 15 years or so by sanctions, which we'll get to later. But the the crisis there is at a place where um, the minimum monthly wage is mm-hmm. about $1.50. Most people uh, have trouble. adjusting a bit for inflation too, because I think they have huge inflation there and right. different currency, I believe. Right. It's it's one it's a dollar fifty in US uh, in US dollars. But the there is a, not only a lack of access to jobs, there's a lack of access to food, medical care of any kind. Mm-hmm. I'm reading from the article now. A pack of three condoms costs four dollars and forty cents, which is three Jeez. times Venezuela's monthly minimum wage. Monthly. Birth monthly minimum wage. Birth control costs more than twice as much, roughly eleven dollars a month. Well, an IUD or intrauterine device can cost more than forty dollars, uh, more than twenty five times. The minimum term solution, right? If you wanted to get something that would actually uh, prevent you from being coming pregnant for a long period of time, yeah. uh, and that does not include the doctor's suite to have the device put in. Um, on top of all of this, this lack Just of to access. Interject that this also connects to things. Um, you know, we were talking about it being a cautionary tale in terms of women's health policy, but you also see things like recent conversations that Republicans vetoed. Um, in Congress about raising the minimum wage, um, about universal health care, because I'm thinking um, about things like monthly cost of birth control. Um, that's not just a one-off that you you take the card for a month. You have to pay that every month. And things like universal health care could reduce the cost, whether it be here or there. I mean, it's a socialized country, so mm-hmm. you would expect that sort of thing to help. But you see the risks of not having healthcare covered. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And way. on top of this, uh, women, women had been using abortion as a last resort and abortion is illegal in Venezuela. So they were having to utilize sort of an underground uh, system of healthcare <laughs> to access abortion. And this predominantly stopped in January of this year. Um, women's activists halted unofficial abortion services after the arrest of a university professor who helped a 13-year-old girl who was raped end a pregnancy. Um, the professor was arrested and it spooked everyone else. So now that it's just not an option to get now it's it's it was already not very, as much. <laughs> it was already very dangerous to get an abortion, um, both because of the uh, legal implications of it, and because the two ways to access abortions 
were the sort of more obviously dangerous one, which is they would try to perform a surgery, not often having the right tools or the right facilities. Or, you know, medication afterwards to prevent infection. Cause that's what I think, you know, bleeding and infection would be a huge thing if you're essentially mm-hmm. scraping the uterus without proper antibiotics. In the um, New York Times article, they talk about a 24 year old woman who already had children and she couldn't afford to provide for another one. So she went into an abortion and her uterus was punctured uh, and mm. she died on the table. So because, yeah, I mean, you don't have imaging, you don't have professionals necessarily doing it. It's like when you said that about um, the illegal or alternative procedures halting in January, I, it's dark, but I thought like the only worse thing than a back alley abortion is no back alley abortion, is that yeah. there just simply is not an option. Because then I, what do you do if you don't have the last resort? Right. And the other option for abortions were, um, there is this uh, a pill you can take. It's supposed to be taken when it's given in the US. It's a pill that both can induce an abortion. It's also used uh, in uh, after miscarriages to help um, the body cleanse itself. It's called misoprostol um, and it's prescribed for in the US, for example, um, and is thus safe for this use whether you have what's called a fetal death, which is a miscarriage, but it hasn't been expelled naturally and the body isn't doing that on its own, um, or it can be used in tandem with another drug that kind of lessens the side effects of telling your body to expel something and and essentially like doing aggressive cramps, triggering aggressive Mm -hmm. cramps to uh, detach and expel the contents of your uterus, which can be very uncomfortable. But the bottom line is that you can use it for an abortion. And it's something that if prescribed correctly and monitored and, you know, the actual real version of the medication, because that's where the problem ends up being with a lot of these cases. Um, it can be done at home. It's something mm-hmm. that your doctor or prescriber can send you home with. And yeah. over the next week, you you know may have some discomfort, but you can do it at home and be fine and recover. But the problem is that prescribing that or having that drug in Venezuela is no longer legal. So you turn to alternative means of getting what is alleged to be the drug. And uh, it's still, so some women are still uh, accessing uh, the second dose of this drug. So it's supposed to be administered in two doses. It's supposed to be administered in two doses. The first dose is um, supposed to prepare your body uh, for uh, expulsion. The second dose actually helps move everything out. But the problem is that a lot of women um, can't get the first dose in Venezuela. And the first dose makes it far more comfortable, a far more comfortable process. It's still going to be uncomfortable and painful um, it, it, in some ways, or it, it can be. It depends but, on the person, but yeah, right, I mean. It, it, but the, um, the situation in Venezuela is uh, such that uh, women are almost always, if they can even afford to take the drug at all, they're only taking the second dose. 
which makes it an extremely painful days long process. And because it's illegal, they have to find a safe place to have the abortion by mm-hmm. themselves. So they are having abort, they are um, experiencing, you know, four day long abortion processes in uh, warehouses or alone in, in hotels or at friends' houses. Um, if you can get the time off work, I mean, if that's even an option, the problem, part of the problem, which is, I, it might actually be worse. The New York Times mentions this Jose Vende Toto website, which is essentially Jose sells everything. And that's where this woman in the, the article got the medication that we don't even know that it is misoprostol. It could be a little bit of that it could be none of that cut mm-hmm. with drain cleaner it, yeah. it could be any number of things that will yes make your body expel all contents of the uterus but we don't know and that's kind yeah. of what your that's your best case scenario if mm-hmm. there's nothing legal because you're just you have you have <laughs> to take that option because you, you don't have any other options um the, and it's excruciating if you don't take the first dose it's an excruciating process if you're only taking the second but this is literally the only option that women have and one of the stories again in the new york times article was um of a girl who was assaulted by her boyfriend and she had the abortion so it's not even so simple that you can say like okay, well, and not that this should even have to be part of the conversation, but someone might say, well, okay, if they can't, you know, if they can't um, access any kind of contraception or birth control, why not just choose abstinence? They don't have to have sex, which is like a a completely heartless and like ridiculous way to look at it because that's just not how human beings, like you you shouldn't have to rely only on abstinence in order to be able to control your own sexual health. But that's not even a choice because- a lot of these women who are being forced to make these choices were sexually assaulted. So it's so, just, it's dehumanization on top of dehumanization. And you think and, this makes a person for that person's whole life. And mm-hmm. so whether or not you have children, um, I don't have children. I love, for example, Arthur, I would want every opportunity for him. And then I imagine a mother with children, same deal um, that if you can't give every opportunity to your child or any potential child, you don't want to make that person because mm-hmm. it's not fair to them, let alone it not being fair to you. So, Jade. And in a lot of these cases, um, these women already have children. And one of mm-hmm. the first stories that they talk about in the New York Times article is a 25 year old, that's my age. She um, is pregnant with her sixth child. She already has five children and she's pregnant with her sixth. She, her and her husband uh, have been um, looking for contraception for years. They are constantly looking for birth control and, and condoms. They very rarely uh, can access them. So they just keep having children because there isn't another option. And again, yeah, you can say like, if your first instinct is like, okay, well then just don't have sex anymore. Yeah, they tried. It sounds like they tried it. that. That, I mean, that yeah. Venezuelan women were forced into that position um, after Chavez and in Maduro's regime. It sounds like a lot of women chose to be abstinent. But again, it's and, not and couples too. But yeah. then obviously you factor in things like um, overt assault and things like pressure in uh, a marriage, for example. Well, in yeah. agency and priorities. I mean, you think about it takes two to tango and sometimes two to not tango. And 
the male partner's incentive to not do it is going to be very different than the female partner's because the burden is so directly different. Weighted, um, yeah, one, weighted yeah. one way. And not only that, but like when we are talking about solutions to this, I think the solution should be focused on, okay, so how do we get these women? And instead of asking them to do something like abstain from sex, it should be, how do we get these women birth control? How do we get them access to reproductive health care? How do we, you know, um, give them more bodily autonomy in general? And the, the problem is just that this has been a situation that has been compounding on itself Mm. for two decades. It's not only a social issue in that um, even uh, in the article, there's a a woman who was quoted as saying that um, Maduro never got over his his way of looking at women as incubators. And so there's a social side of this where like- What we were saying as a joke with the sperm thing, that it's just a place to put your babies for a little while until they're fresh. And I think that like, there are so it's 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 a it's not only a problem of like a very socially regressive view of women. There's not only that social aspect, but the much more overwhelming and um, the the much bigger hurdle to overcome is the economic aspect. Where like even if this were a country that had you know great views on gender and sex and agency and consent, um, it, they don't even have the choice. They don't even have the the choice to use contraception or or have any control over their bodies because it's not there. They just don't have um, access to pills or IUDs or yeah. condoms. Even I mean, I'd, I'd caution that it's it's both. That it, I don't know that it's more economic than it is social because I think you look at a country like the U.S., which in a relative sense. Um, does have the resources for those sort of things to be accessible. Um, We also have the resources for them to be more accessible with proper allocation of money. Um, But it it does illustrate to you a little bit that um, you really need both in tandem. But I think to your point, the economic piece is making um, a nearly impossible social regime fully impossible because mm-hmm. it's not even like, um, say, as we could knock on wood and it got tenuous there for a while, but as we could under Trump, um, you could still buy condoms, you could still get your birth control pills, uh, although his court messed with abortion laws and a lot of states did and pricing of birth control, et cetera, et cetera, um, you know, things were going downhill that even with the regressive government and it spreading into other branches beyond the executive, we mm-hmm. still had the option in our economy mm-hmm. to access those things. Um, yeah. Even if the price got higher and the supplies were more limited right. and things looked bleak. So the that, majority think, of people yeah. could still buy condoms. A lot of people could still access. And as, as like, you know, we've talked about on the podcast, how birth control needs to be more accessible in the U S mm-hmm. And I think that's very much true and affordable. I mean, if it, I were in charge, we'd just be like dumping boxes of put them in vending machine version birth control onto like every city in America. They are <laughs> safe enough to be over the counter because like you and I have talked about, they have them over the counter in a number of countries. Um, they're definitely safe enough. It's fine. Some college campuses have actually done dry runs of putting them in vending machines and it's gone very well. Yeah, there's... There's no reason why it should not be more accessible, except that 
America has this weird obsession with controlling women's sex lives and controlling um, when, when they can or uh, if they do have children, but it's not to this extent as it is in Venezuela. And so right. again, we're looking at a, a, an example of how hmm. bad things Where can get go? for not only women, but their children, their families, their communities, when they don't have access to any kind of yeah. uh, over like, their reproductive lives. If this isn't enough for you, um, as we've said with a lot of social issues, if the immediate human impact isn't enough, um, Usually, the pro-social progressive policy front is also logically helpful to the economy at large. So Mm -hmm. with setting aside the immediate effect on the women and the children produced from this, um, from any lack of access, you got the women are not getting adequate health care. They're like, forget mental health because that is out the window. Mm-hmm. Um, but physical health care for like prenatal care, postnatal care, because uh, maternity death rates are also very, very high. You, you know, if you have good women's health care, they're going to give you things like misoprostol, which allows you to expel miscarriages that, that mm-hmm. you can't have one without the other. So a lot of things suffer. Um, the resources for healthcare are much more diluted because there are more people in the system. Uh, children having adequate education just becomes impossible. Again, like I said, Maduro has urged women to have six children each and the financial burdens on a government of an already strapped populace creating six people each, mm-hmm. um, that just doesn't... Yeah distribute well the reality Um, of the situation is that a lot of these people are having trouble feeding themselves much less their children like quality of life provides for themselves they can't provide for their kids because the economy is so uh is in such a crisis and Mm -hmm. that is a good jump to uh why are we talking about this um beyond the the obvious (laughs) beyond the obvious human issue but it's like okay so we're not just talking about this to discuss this. We're not just talking about it because it's like, oh, yeah, like what do we do? What bad situation in Venezuela? We the U.S. has had a direct um, impact on what's going on in Venezuela through um, sanctions that have been Im- uh, imposed on the country for the last for almost two decades. Um, and this has uh, there was just a a, a U.N. Um, so let me pull this up. Uh, what was the actual a special repertoire? A special repertoire for the for the UN um, recently issued a report uh, calling the U.S.-led sanctions on Venezuela devastating to human rights and the population there. Um, the Alina Duhan, I believe her name is. Um, and actually, was she the repertoire? Mm-hmm. So, just to backtrack a little bit um, about where we're standing now. So um, while you're looking up, so the the prior administration before Maduro was Hugo Chavez, who I'm sure that's a name much more familiar to a lot of folks. Uh, he and GW Bush did not like each other. There were a lot of nasty sentiments on both sides. Um, I don't know enough to delve into who was right, who was wrong. Um, I, I seem to remember something about Americans being demons. And then obviously GW Bush hit back with these sanctions. And it goes back even further because uh, Venezuela, despite being 
a huge oil producer and a member of OPEC, which is the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries. So obviously we care about them and we need them in some sense. Um, they allied themselves with Cuba and were a socialist government early on and in that region when it mattered in post-Cold War years. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of animosity going on there, especially with Republican administrations. But for a long time, there was also a kind of dependency because they had huge oil reserves in the, the Lake Titicaca region, which I did not make up. We're not just throwing that in there. I didn't. It's giggles. real. I For shits and tits. <laughs> shits and tits. We should put that on a t-shirt. For shits and tits. For shits and Lake Titicaca. For shits and tits. <laughs> um, the, the, sorry. Uh, yeah. Going back to like what you're talking about with um, the like long-term animosity. Um, yeah. Again, the, the fact that Venezuela even though it's not really, I mean, it's a very, it's technically calls itself a socialist country. It's an extremely corrupt socialist country. So it's not functioning yeah, it's not, the way that democratic socialist countries, um, look at the like, cost of countries f function. It's, it's, yeah, yeah I mean, when you were reading off the, the cost of medicine that can be over the counter being more than the monthly minimum wage, that's not proper socialized medicine that's not the implementation that is intended when you say socialized medicine um, right, but so, yeah the fact that this not regime right. calls itself socialist um uh, it's go, the cuba socialist era it's that whole like oh right. god red scare commie nonsense i mean yeah. you look Which at um was evil the, in some ways but <laughs> for, for, since the cold war um since before the cold war uh, there has been um, extreme animosity toward uh, any group that labels itself, uh, any group or country or organization, any anyone that labels themselves leftist, communist, socialist. Um, there has been a lot of not only scrutiny from the U.S. government, but um, heavy handedness in uh, sanctions and um, implementing regime change. We saw that with the, mm -hmm. with the Sandinistas in Nicaragua in the 70s. We saw that um, mm -hmm. all over Central America during the uh, 60s and 70s. Um, they were very invested in making sure that, um, quote unquote, socialism didn't take a foothold. Basically, we got our way. I think at a, at a certain point, and this is why we need women in charge, it was just like these ego-based pissing contest that we didn't want to lose at a certain point. Um, and we wanted our guys and we wanted control and we wanted to show that we had the bigger military dick. It was really like, that's what it came down to, especially in Central and South America. I think so. that the US government has had a vested interest in um, in ensuring that any, uh, any regime that uh, claims to be socialist, even though it, uh, even if it's not effectively socialist, does not succeed. And the, uh, you know, we, especially around the Cold War, as you said, we saw that. Um, and so there's always been a lot of animosity between the U.S. and the Cuban government, as you said, the U.S. and Venezuela. Which that makes more sense because there were, you know, nuclear warheads. So, like, I don't want to suggest that the initial Cold War animus was fully out of nowhere because obviously communism um, in so like pre-Vietnam communism, I think was a very different animal. Mm. Um, 
And it was just as corrupted from the actual concept of textual communism or socialism, but because um, the Cuban government at no point was proper, perfect, um, anything mm-hmm. that was human centric. But, you know, I digress, except that no, I there think have been- we held this grudge because at one point there was a real threat from a communist nation nearby. And so like the men in power just got really fucking invested in winning mm-hmm. forever. Yeah. And here we and are. So they're already, I think that there was already a lot of bad blood between the U S and Venezuela. <laughs> and then you have this whole, um, you know, like uh, mean girls fight between Bush <laughs> and Chavez for some reason. Honestly, Yeah. I, I think they honestly like probably each other. Bush and, or Cheney and Chavez, I think was probably what was happening. Cause usually that's I mean, what we president, mean. president Dick yeah. Cheney. Yeah. Like I don't um, see GW Bush sitting there being uh, no. I don't really think Bush was holding a lot of grudges back then. I don't really think he was holding anything. Not a lot going on. Um, but the, the, the outcome of all this is that, um, so in 2005, 2006, uh, the U.S. implemented sanctions on Venezuela um, for a, a variety of issues. Uh, they said that they were not properly um, uh, adhering to the uh, drug trafficking related, um, that, sorry, it had fi- Venezuela had failed to adhere to obligations under international narcotics agreements. There was also a terrorism-related sanctions in 2006, uh, uh, determining that Venezuela had not uh, been cooperating fully with the United States' anti-terrorism efforts. These specific sanctions, um, even though they may have impacted uh, the Venezuelan economy to some extent, they don't really have a lot of... um, they, they were mostly uh, like targeted sanctions, um, including and like it, the, it said that the U.S. Uh, the the United States prohibited all commercial arms sales and retransfers to Venezuela. That's not really it, what we're talking about here, but that's where the uh, sanctions started was in 2005, 2006. And the catalyst isn't necessarily wrong. Like sanctions as a general rule are not inherently good or bad um, in a in a sense, it's essentially depriving another country of economic benefits that come from interacting with you. And in a very internationally interdependent world and market, especially one where we as the US are a very prominent, if not the prominent player, mm-hmm. um, it has huge implications. But as we saw with Iran about Iran about two years ago now, um, you have can- to hear Bush voice there. Iran, I am. N- nuclear, uh, <laughs> like it can be an effective tool to exert international pressure for things like human rights. Um, drug trafficking in Colombia and Venezuela was a, a huge problem, I think still is, and there was a lot of violence that came out of that. Um, but it can be a way to exert pressure in an international scale without sending in military agents without doing things that are directly violent and, it, you know, use intrusion. As a, just as a side note, before we get too far off of this, I did look up some of Chavez's quotes about G.W. Bush. Read them off, baby. That I remember. Um, at the UN, G.W. Bush, 2006, 
Chavez said, yesterday the devil came here, right here, and it smells of sulfur still today. And then Sorry, but more, that's the most metal thing that's ever been. I mean, it's re- that I remember that being the smells of sulfur. It's kind of creative. Like it's kind of good. Um, he had more a on the Bush. dramatic. I I mean, I get why Bush was bad, but it's kind of funny. Um, more on Bush in 2006. You're an alcoholic, a drunk, a liar, an immoral person, Mr. Danger. You are the worst, a psychologically sick man. So they didn't like each other. And obviously there's more going on here than just. Why was he determined to make George W. Bush sound so cool is my question. Mr. Danger? <laughs> he, it's hard, to make, it's hard to make him sound so, uh, sound so legit, but. I know. Um, yeah, so I'm reading through and there's a lot of, um, he's talking about Yankee shits, go to hell a hundred times. So, yeah, Chavez. <laughs> he sounds like text you send back and forth to, like, an ex you have a beef with. It's like, go to hell a thousand times. You're the devil. Yankee shit. Um, you drunk. Yeah. So, obviously, there was, there was some tension there that I think escalated some of the economic strain beyond where folks on both sides of the aisle at the time wanted it to go because, again, at the time, under the Chavez regime, um, oil was doing pretty well. They still have very good reserves, but apparently these economic strains have not helped with that. Um, but yeah, so sanctions in general. Brooke, you were saying they started in the Bush administration. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, again, these, those are kind of okay. I, I, I'm not, I, you know, more I okay. Don't, they didn't Probably. really have. Yeah, they were they were so targeted and so specific. Um, that again, it's like they, uh, the, you couldn't, you couldn't, um, they, they prevented firearm sales. Um, okay. So not the whole economy. And the, um, yeah. and the drug trafficking related sanctions, again, didn't really have a widespread effect on, uh, on the economy itself. But in 2014, 2015 under president Obama, a couple executive orders were issued and one, um, act was passed the Venezuela Defense of Human Rights and Civil Society Act 2014, Mm -hmm. it required the president to impose sanctions against those whom the president identified as responsible for significant acts of violence, serious human rights abuses, and or anti-democratic actions. Um, They continue to extend this. So it's like this was implemented in 2014, but it's been extended to 2023. And again, that, you know, human rights and anti-democratic stuff did happen and mm-hmm. so, there was suppression I mean, of protests around yeah. this time that they were concerned about um, and again, drug trade violence. The majority of these financial the sanctions were focused on Maduro himself, his wife, his son, his executive vice president, um, eight Supreme Court justices, the leaders of the Venezuelan army, National Guard, national police governors, things like that. So it's like the director so of the Maduro's bank. So it's, government. Yeah. it's the government itself. Um, and it was, they actually lifted uh, sanctions against the former head of Venezuela's intelligence services after he broke ranks. So it was more targeted. It was more specific. Um, the And seeing Maduro now, I, I would not be surprised to learn that there were human rights violations under his 
his presidency in the past, you know, it, it fits. It there was a, there was absolute suppression of free speech under Maduro, um, as well as other things there. So there, there's no doubt about that, that there was that going on. Um, but then in 2017, August of 2017, President Trump extended, uh, sorry, expanded these hmm. sanctions. He issued an executive order uh, which prohibited access to U.S. financial markets by the Venezuelan government. Um, and it also restricted their uh, the, the state-owned oil company, which is their that's their bread and butter. That's the, that the main it. way that, that is, they make money. That's it was their a huge, main export. Yeah, and it, I think Brooke and I were looking into it a little bit before. And Brooke, you said that they have the largest oil reserves in the world. Um, and then Maybe. now I saw that under Maduro, they are only able to tap that with one um, one drill. So. Yeah. Their only competition is Saudi Arabia, which was interesting <laughs> to me because um, by restricting the Venezuelan oil company, you are um, boosting the 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 um, demand for Saudi mm-hmm. oil, um, which control. the Saudis are uh, you know a, a, an ally of the U.S. So there is some political. Um, it's at least in, in my opinion, it does seem like there would be some political uh, drive to do that as well. well. But Brooke, they don't commit human rights violations, so it's a totally different animal. And that's it, isn't it? Because <laughs> the way that the this is like, I think this is like actually the kind of the seed of my problem with these mm. sanctions um, to begin with is that uh, even though it's inarguable that human rights violations have happened under the Maduro regime. Uh, the way that we pick and choose who we impose sanctions against depends a lot on how much we're, um, how beneficial our relationship, staying on good terms with uh, with that country is. So Saudi Arabia is um, allies of ours. Uh, they are a huge so- source of oil. Um, again, An ally so- with Trump particularly. I mean, he he was willing to turn heads on human rights abuses more than I think anybody else in the government, even on the Republican side would have But there, it's not like, you know, the, it's not like we were any more cozy, uh, uh, you know, towards Saudi Arabia um, underneath the Obama administration or the Bush administration. The the Saudis have always gotten away with human rights violations under every one of these administrations. I'd say Khashoggi though is a different level of, of the under Trump, our government was just commanded to suppress any sort of retaliation for taking and killing a journalist for bad press. Even though um, the CIA did identify that, not that yeah. the CIA is always like the most reliable source of info. Um, well, but, but I think, yeah, that in this case, they certainly were and, and, and Trump in this demonized case, the, them. The yeah. ties were so obvious to, uh, between Khashoggi and Mohammed bin Salman, video. The, uh, prince yeah. of Saudi Arabia. Absolutely, it's like it can't be denied, and everyone, everybody knew that Khashoggi had been killed. I mean, by we did Saudi as Arabia, um, and Absolutely. let alone what the government knew. Apparently, there were phone calls. But in any event, what does this mean? I think, Brooke, what you're saying is is that you don't like the double standard that's used as an excuse to do something that cripples one country's economy um, for human rights abuses when we don't impose. It, it just seems like a false flag, right? Mm-hmm. That that we're not doing this um, it seems for other like countries. We're covering our actions in this, like, uh, you know, in this gloss of oh, we're trying to promote human rights in Venezuela. Not, and it's it's not that I'm saying that human rights abuses do not happen in Venezuela. 
I'm saying that I don't know if we're the best determiner of what human (laughs) rights abuses are when we can turn a blind eye to Saudi Arabia killing Jamal Khashoggi and their treatment of gay people and women um, for, you know, the entire time for centuries and and pretend that we like have some like that, you know, we're holding our nose at Venezuela. And this is the reason why we are um, implementing these sanctions in the first place. So yeah, I it mean, make any sense to me? It's like I, okay, so I agree with the. Do we really make care sense. about human rights abuses? If this is a good excuse to talk about um, negative intervention versus positive intervention and how sanctions can be used um, to positive end and, and not so positive end, because in a an international policy sense, I do think that this is the better alternative to. Um, and taking a step back from the actual circumstance, but just in a, in a general sense, sanctions are a less intrusive um, and less domestically taxing way to enact international change. When we don't have a lot of um, means of affecting other countries' domestic policy, because the UN, um, as the second UN Secretary General described it, was not designed to take us to heaven, it's designed to keep us from hell. So there aren't a whole lot, there's not an enforcement body. Um, The Security Council has vetoes from a lot of these corrupt countries like China and Russia. So what we have as a domestic superpower is financial control of our own market. And it's a huge market and it it does have a lot of effects. but in terms of who we treat in which way, I think you're absolutely right that it's not in good faith in a human sense, in a, a logical sense. But um, a lot of political progress, whether it be domestic or international, isn't re- like you kind of take the wins you can get. So I'm hesitant to turn away from uh, anything that prioritizes human rights in one place, even if. Like, I, I would rather not step back from that just to even the playing field lower on the scale. Um, and that's true if if yeah. the if the sanctions on the Maduro regime were having some mm. positive effect, I yes. might agree with you. But uh, this this UN report um, from Alina Dohan uh, specifically outlines how it the um, the sanctions have are quote unquote constitute violations of international law and have mm. exacerbated Venezuelans Venezuela's economic crisis with ineffective and insufficient carve outs for humanitarian issues. Um, basically, sense, yeah. the sanctions have crippled the economy, uh, and the people who are being hurt by it are not the Maduro regime. Um, it's the the people the lowest classes the, the most impoverished people in Venezuela, and so it's and the carve out sounds um, that's probably the key to it right that there could be things like carve outs to allow extra money for medical care for contraceptive access for things mm-hmm. that would directly impact this uh, and just reading directly from the report uh, impediments to food imports uh, constituting more than fifty percent. Of food, and, of food consumption have resulted in the steady growth of malnourishment in the past six years. 
Um, the also the impact of trade sanctions is uh, particularly felt in the Venezuelan countryside where agriculture activities have all but stopped since imports of diesel fuel have dried up. So the uh, the trade sanctions implemented primarily by Trump uh, in 2017, 2018, and I believe 2019 as well, he 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 like tripled down on these sanctions. And, and funny enough, through uh, the through enacting three executive orders. So this wasn't through Congress, it wasn't through the legislature. It was through executive orders that he prevented transactions of cryptocurrency. He blocked ICE them out of the financial mar- ICE Venezuela out of the financial markets, and uh, prohibited transactions related to purchasing Venezuelan debt. So this just like kneecapped Venezuela's like economy. Anything, uh, and it's it. It is worth noting that executive orders that for international issues, it's it's the one field that it's more common to have executive orders be the instrument because the executive has a lot of international power. But that said, when you hear all these issues about implementation, because when we talk about the the special rapporteur's report for the UN, that's um, on the sanctions at large in Venezuela. It's not specific to this women's health issue, which has suffered in response. But you think about the Trump administration, who was doing foreign policy, who was drafting these things. Um, I don't imagine that it was anyone who was particularly well-versed at... Um, execution of these sort of things and human rights carve-outs and policy carve-outs in general, let alone if it's related to women's health and access to that sort of thing. So it it comes as no surprise that this is poorly executed. So if you're up for it, I would wrap up with the um, unresolved question of what we do in this case, which has come up a lot of times before and will again of countries beyond our own that are related to our economy somehow, um, obviously, because everybody is, and are in need of dire financial support. And the people didn't do anything wrong. I mean, the least are just living there. At um, least allow, uh, not even, maybe not even um, active aid, but just releasing our grip our vice grip on their economy, letting them letting them um, trade and interact with the market would maybe be, I think, helpful. Yeah, and the humanitarian carve-outs. Uh, like tailoring allowing, these sort of things. Like, Which as, seems as you said before, if, right. uh, the previous sanctions are more targeted. Mm-hmm. So, in so my it seems opinion, like something you could do and make effective use of a, a kind of non-interventionist intervention and international pressure Yeah, that doesn't... My my opinion is that we should uh, take the L, <laughs> realize <laughs> that the sanctions have not um, had their intended effect, which is uh, pushing Maduro out in favor of Juan Guaido, who is the leader who is recognized by the United States uh, due to uh, a contested election in, I believe, 2017, um, which is when Trump first implemented the new sanctions. Uh, realize that this is not having the intended effect, realizing that it's actually hurting the Venezuelan people more than it's hurting Maduro or his regime, and step back and look at the sanctions that we have and um, eliminate the ones that are crippling the Venezuelan economy. And if we wanted to target Maduro and his people, uh, the people in his government specifically, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like the ones in uh, 2005, 2006, and under the majority of the ones under Obama, um, did, but in, in a way that we know we're not just um, harming people who are already in an extremely bad situation. 
it seems like you could almost um, just repeal and replace in one fell swoop that it wouldn't have to be get rid of the measures and wait and retail or something, especially if a lot of this is done through executive order, um, just replace it in an executive order that makes the requisite carve outs and instead, you know, gets rid of the sanctions and targets whatever entities and maybe businesses at large, like there might be national economies and national scale things in Venezuela that um, would do well to be targeted if they're weapons sales or governmental entities, whatever, that you could just replace it in one action with something that is better targeted and with the requisite carve outs for international aid, medical health, you know, financing those sorts of efforts, whatever. And I think that it's not like, um, you know, there aren't people who understand the situation and can act, can give advice and expertise about like, okay, this is what we can do. (laughs) They know what they're doing. Like I know very, yeah, I know very little about Biden's um, specific, you know, feelings about what's going on in Venezuela uh, now or what his policy Expertise, right? Like, because that's kind of the line I draw. I don't know if I agree with what they're doing, but every really every administration, save for Trump, at least hired experts. And so in that sense, I'm like, at least if they do something, it's intentional, (laughs) which is less than we can say for who drafted the last orders. So, Well, I think, I mean, it it does seem like uh, if the intention was to um, harm well, you know, Venezuela. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what Trump was. Intending yeah. I mean, either. you're right in the sense that he was just like, fuck you. And that was, that was it. That was mm-hmm. the extent of his feeling on anything. But I don't think that there, I don't think that um, we're, if we don't know what we're doing in Venezuela, we should get out of Venezuela's business. That's what I'm like. It really, it's like, we, but we don't, I feel like there are people who can explain and, and look, I mean, we look at this, uh, this UN report itself and it's like, obviously it's pointing out that there are flaws with the sanctions that we put in place now. And it's telling us how we can adjust those sanctions in a way that's not going to um, be as harmful to the Venezuelan people. So that to me, seems like a solution right there. It's yeah. like, okay, yeah, we know how. Importance. Yeah. Yeah. Cause we're, I mean, we're kind of out of Venezuela now and that, that's the distinction between these negative sort of reactions, which are pulling ourselves out and saying, you can't interact with our economy, you can't get money from us. And what they did with School of the Americas and- More assertive. Yeah, and interventionists, like actually going in and sending people in, that this tends to be the the more pull out way of intervening in general. So it is it beats the alternative in the sense of like boots on the ground or training militias, but- um, because it, it basically just says you can't play with us. And mm-hmm. so what we want is that, them to be able to play with us morally. Yeah. And I, I think one thing that like, you know, we talk a lot about how, okay, so these sanctions just, just say like, you can't, you know, interact with our markets. But one thing that popped out to me in the, um, in the CNN uh, article on the special the special UN report is that um, it says U.S. led, and I think that's key because it's not just that the U.S. Mm-hmm. is implementing these sanctions; uh, the EU is also implementing these sanctions because uh, they, follow, they yeah. tend to follow our lead. And so it's like not only um, are we signaling to Venezuela, not only are we are we signaling to Venezuela that we are going to 
put our boot down, uh, maybe not physically, but metaphorically on them. But yeah. we're signaling to other countries that they should do the same. So this and by especially pulling out our easing, allies, they have to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. By easing and, up on them, I think that other countries will follow suit and hopefully um, the, the people of Venezuela won't be under so much pressure, so much financial pressure. We shall see. And this is a, a nice, if not actually nice way to tie it up. Um, and the other thing that I would say has a ripple effect, like you're saying on an international scale is the domestic atmosphere that the Trump administration has created that you think of countries that weren't um, to where we were before the Trump administration and even after um, seeing how little we prioritize healthcare in general, especially women's health, reproductive health, etc. Um, and when you're talking about other countries getting our signal in relation to sanctions, the same absolutely applies in relation to messaging about how much women matter, um, how much children matter, how much control over your own body matters, um, and- How much lifting people out of poverty matters. Yes, and we signaled that that is not a priority from the largest economic power in the world, so why would Mm -hmm. anyone else prioritize it, It, you know? Yeah, and there's, there's a chance that if we lift these sanctions, the Venezuelan economy um, will continue to, because it wasn't like we, the, the, the economic crisis in Venezuela was happening before the sanctions were implemented. Um, lifting these alone might not be enough to lift Venezuelans out of poverty, but at least we're not having anything to do with their suffering, right? Like at least we yeah, can no, say it, like, it won't we're pulling ourselves out of the situation. Mm-hmm. Like, it, yeah, you're right. Um, Cause it but also we, won't change the fact that Maduro doesn't care. Yeah. about women <laughs> yeah but as as but. american voters we don't have any say in how the venezuelan government um treats its citizens but we do have a say in how, how our government treats venezuelans how our so, foreign policy yeah. yeah so um maybe even conditioning things like sanctions um mm-hmm. that's a very intricate way but if you conditioned things like foreign aid on positive social policy, you'd get a lot of pushback, I think, from domestic conservatives, but it might help. (laughs) Might help. All right, guys, uh, as always, thank you for listening. Uh, We are back to um, once every two week episodes, and we are so excited because we have a lineup of super exciting episodes. Um, we have been during this time that we've been off, we've actually been doing a lot of planning for the coming couple mm-hmm. of months. I am so excited for um, what we have in store. Um, we're going to have some extremely cool guests on. We're going to be doing some extremely uh, fun co-episodes again. We've done a couple of those in the past Ooh, and yeah. um, joint, we joint can't say anything with, yet, but join these fun friends. Yeah. yeah and, um, super cool friends. And uh yeah, I spent a lot of time on the floor with Arthur thinking about episodes because there's not a lot else you can do when you're constrained to the floor with your feet in the air. You know um, what? Two-year-olds have so, some great ideas. I'll tell you that. They're very, you know, they haven't gotten their full a lot of them yet. They're creative. Involve the alphabet and the progression thereof. So that that's a fun idea. Let's We're going to recite the alphabet as bonus material. <laughs> 
So an episode of etymology, baby. Let's do I love it. Let's go. Yeah. Um, um if you yeah. and we also have a bonus episode coming up soon about the now Oscar nominated film Promising Young Woman um on our Patreon. It's so good. I loved it. I loved it. And we're gonna talk about what we I thought about it. I rented it twice. I bought it. I paid forty dollars. <laughs> oh you rented it twice? I bought it for twenty bucks. It was girl, it was well, you're supporting the female directors. Ayo. Good for um, me. No, it's I an watched... awesome movie. You should watch it. And donate to our Patreon to hear our episode. Our Patreon is patreon.com slash exceedingly persuasive. Um, but yeah, so if you if you want access to our bonus episodes, sign up for our Patreon. Um, also, we're going to do a stream. I don't care how we do it. We're going to fucking get we're gonna it We're going to do it. My thought is Instagram live. Let's just fucking Ooh, do it. I love it. Let's, yeah, let's go. Um, we're going to, but if you are on our Patreon, you get to send us me- uh, messages that we will respond to on our Instagram live or our Twitch stream or whatever, whatever streaming service we use for it. If you are a member of our Patreon um, at the, f- at the top, uh, two of our tiers, you get to uh, send us whatever questions you want. We will respond to them. Um, yeah, you get priority and, and we also send you stuff in the mail. So we'll send you cards and soon mm-hmm. stickers and one day there will be shirts. So someday if, if we get enough money overhead, we will make you shirts. We're really doing it folks. The, you can find me at Brooke Angeline on Instagram and at BKE Rogers on Twitter. You can find me at MKZ Joy Brennan on Instagram and get me to a nunnery on Twitter. The two is the number two. And on Venmo, if you do want to send anything for Bobby Kramer's family, for his wife, Lindsay, and his son, Arthur, uh, you can Venmo me at MKZ Brennan on Venmo and I'll send you a receipt. And we really appreciate all your support. Uh, This is so fucked. I've known Lindsay since middle school and Bobby since high school. They're just, ah, God damn it. Don't drive drunk. That's my message. Don't Here's drive to drunk. you. Wear a mask. Don't drive love drunk. Your, love people around you. Love thy neighbor. Love thy and neighbor. Good night and good luck, gang. Uh, stay safe. Don't do sanctions. Don't do sanctions. Mm-mm. Bye. Mm.